So today's reading is taken from the book of Revelations, um, chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, and chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. And it can be found on page 1234 and 1235 of your church Bible. To the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crime. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. <clears throat> to the church in Philadelphia, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come down and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Angela. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that in the written word, and through the spoken word, we may see the living word, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. What should an ideal church look like? What would we expect to find there? A large congregation? Great music? Comfortable building? Being well thought of by everyone? Well, 
This morning, we're continuing to look at messages in the book of Revelation that were sent by Jesus to seven different churches. And we can learn a great deal from them because they show us what he looks for in a church. Last month, we considered messages to the churches in Ephesus and Laodicea, which were the first and last stops on the route along which this letter would travel. We saw that the church in Ephesus had many commendable qualities, but their love had grown cold. The church in Laodicea had nothing at all for which they could be commended. They were lukewarm in their faith and had left Jesus on the outside, knocking to be allowed in. Both of those churches were warned that they would need to change if they were to have a future. And so our title last time was, Warnings We Should Heed. This morning, we move in from those bookends to consider the second and sixth of these messages addressed to the churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia. They had none of the impressive history or resources of the churches in Ephesus and Laodicea. A casual observer would probably have dismissed them as being struggling and insignificant. Yet Jesus found no fault with them at all. So our title this morning is Examples We Should Follow. We're going to have a look at why these two churches received his approval. In each case, we'll take a few moments to look at the cities where they were located. Then we'll consider what Jesus said about them. We'll also think about how these messages draw on the vision of the risen Jesus in chapter 1 and the vision of the new Jerusalem at the end of the book. Izmir is a major port city in modern Turkey, but it also has archaeological remains dating from the Roman era. In New Testament times, it was called Smyrna. It was famed for its beauty and for being the birthplace of the Greek poet Homer. Its population was also proud of how the city had been brought back to life after lying in ruins for 300 years. The local economy benefited greatly from the proceeds of sea trade. The city was also intensely loyal to Rome. Indeed, for centuries, it had had a temple for the goddess of Rome, Dea Roma. And more recently, it had enthusiastically embraced Caesar worship. So, at the time Revelation was written, it was a prosperous city, but not an easy place for Christians to live. Let's now see what Jesus says to these believers. If you want to follow along, it's on page 1234 of the Church Bibles. He begins, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, 
who died and came to life again. There's a reason why these particular descriptions of Jesus from chapter 1 are recalled here. For a start, Smyrna was saturated with devotion to Rome and to Caesar. Roman power seemed to call all the shots. So these words were a reminder that it is Christ who is the first and the last. He was there before creation and will be there until the end of time and beyond. He, not Caesar, is the one in control. He is also the one who died and came to life again. The city of Smyrna in which they lived boasted about how it had risen again from the rubble of history. But a far more important resurrection had taken place after Jesus' death on the cross. And it meant that believers had a future beyond the grave. Let's read on. Jesus says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. They were struggling with opposition and persecution. But Jesus was with them and knew their difficulties. And even though their poverty was in stark contrast to the affluence of the city in which they lived, Jesus said that they were rich in what really mattered. That's a reminder of a parable he once told about a rich fool who thought only about material wealth until God called time on his life. Jesus concluded that story by saying, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. In fact, what Jesus says about these believers is the opposite of what we read last time about the church in Laodicea. That church was told, you say I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. The Christians in Laodicea lived comfortably in a prosperous city because they hadn't put Jesus first. The Christians in Smyrna were uncomfortable and poor in a prosperous city because they were faithful whatever the cost. But Jesus declared them to be rich. He continues, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. That's strong language, but it certainly didn't arise from anti-Jewish sentiment. For the New Testament was mostly written by Jews, and these churches were composed of both Jews and Gentiles. Instead, it arose from some prominent figures in the local synagogue. We know from other books in the New Testament that there was opposition to the message that Gentiles could come to God without first becoming Jews. That opposition had intensified in Smyrna and was now causing real harm to believers there. The background 
was that Jews had an exemption from worshipping Caesar. That exemption had been extended for a while also to Christians, but was then withdrawn from them. Their refusal to worship Caesar was seen as disloyalty to Rome. And the synagogue in Smyrna seems to have exploited the suspicion this generated by spreading malicious rumors about the church there. Jesus says that those responsible, despite their claims to be serving God, were actually doing the work of Satan, the great accuser. He continues, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Jesus didn't say that he was going to take away their difficulties, for these were part of the cost of following him. But being a Christian also carried the prospect of a great prize. Smyrna was well known for its athletic games, where the winner would receive a laurel crown. For the Christian, the crown would be a future life with Jesus. The mention of 10 days here seems to have been an encouragement to follow the example of Daniel and his friends in the Old Testament. They were tested for 10 days when they sought to honor God in a foreign culture. Finally, the Christians in Smyrna were told, the one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. They would not be spared the first death that comes to everyone, but they would be spared the second death of God's judgment. Let's now move on to the second part of our reading. When we near the, hear the name Philadelphia today, we think of a major city in the United States. But the Philadelphia of the New Testament was a city strategically located on a trade route between Europe and the East. It was also intended to be a base for spreading Greek culture. However, it was in an earthquake zone and residents sometimes had to evacuate for several days until the aftershocks of the latest quake had died down. As a result, they never felt fully settled there. In fact, the city was flattened by a particularly severe earthquake in the year 17 AD, and it required large subsidies from Rome to pay for its reconstruction. As a result, it was known for a while as Neo-Caesarea, the new city of Caesar, before it reverted to its previous name of Philadelphia. Now, Let's look at what Jesus says to the church in this important but rather shaky city. It's just the next page in your Bibles. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. In chapter 1, we read about the risen Christ 
holding the keys of death and Hades. Here he's said to hold the key of David. That's a reference to the book of Isaiah, where we read this about Hilkiah, who was the right-hand man to the king, King Hezekiah. It says, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. That key symbolized access to the king and his kingdom. And that image is now applied here to Jesus. He holds the key that gives access to God and his kingdom. As we read on, we learn that the synagogue in Philadelphia, like the one in Smyrna, had slammed its doors on the Christians in the city. But Jesus says that the most important door is the one to which he holds the key. During his earthly ministry, Jesus had warned the religious leaders, Woe to you, teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. He also said, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. One day, God's acceptance of the Christians in Philadelphia, who included both Jews and Gentiles, would be acknowledged. For Jesus now says this about those who had been denouncing them. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. That echoes what the book of Isaiah had said about oppressors one day recognizing the people of God for who they were. Jesus was now applying these words to those who were oppressing the Christians in Philadelphia. Let's now see what he says about this church. I know your deeds. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Jesus knew all about them. He knew that, to an outside observer, they looked weak. The church was probably modest in size. Its members seemed to have lacked social status and material security. Yet Jesus had nothing but good to say about them. Why? Because they were listening carefully to his word and living by it. Because they were patiently enduring the suffering that came from being known as Christians. And Jesus was affirming them for this. He also says, See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. We can read that as yet another reference to the door to God's presence that Jesus had opened for them. But it can also refer to a door of opportunity for the gospel. For example, Paul had previously written to the nearby church in Colossae saying, pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. 
it would only be natural, wouldn't it, for a church like this that felt weak and under pressure to want to retreat into its shell. But Jesus was opening a door of opportunity for them. And so a city that had been intended to to spread Greek culture could instead become a base for spreading the message about Jesus. As usual, Jesus concludes with words of encouragement. He says this about the future that he has planned for them. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. For the time being, these believers were living in a city that was plagued by earthquakes, not knowing when they might next suddenly have to evacuate. But they would never have to leave the future home that God had planned for them. That home would not be in Neo-Caesarea, the new city of Caesar, but rather in the new Jerusalem, the city of God. And it would have an unshakable foundation. In their present city of Philadelphia, it was the practice to honor esteemed citizens by installing a new pillar in one of the temples and engraving their name on it. But these believers had an even greater privilege to look forward to. They're pictured as becoming pillars in the temple of God with his name engraved on them. Let's return to our opening question. What would we expect to find in the ideal church? A large congregation, comfortable buildings, being well thought of by everyone, The churches in Smyrna and Philadelphia certainly were not like that. They had few resources and were under pressure from society around them. It would be easy to dismiss them as insignificant. Yet, of all the churches that were sent messages by Jesus, these were the ones who received his unqualified approval. Unlike the church in Ephesus, they hadn't lost their first love. And unlike the church in Laodicea, they certainly weren't lukewarm in their faith and obedience to God. They were like the people in Jesus' parable who received the commendation, well done, good and faithful servant, You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Surely we would all wish to hear those words 
spoken to us one day by Jesus. So, what should we take away from this reading? These two churches had few assets. Their focus was simply on listening to God's word and living it out. Let's make that our main focus as well. And like them, let's be unashamed to be known as followers of Jesus. That may mean going against the flow of popular sentiment. However, as the saying goes, a dead fish can float downstream, but it takes a live one to swim upstream. Paul wrote to the Corinthians that there is no other foundation for the church than Jesus Christ. But he also challenged them about how they would build on that foundation. The two churches in our reading were building faithfully, despite their poverty, their apparent weakness, and the pressure they were experiencing from the communities in which they lived. They kept their eyes on the risen Jesus, the first and the last, who holds the key to God's kingdom and presence. They devoted themselves to living according to his word, and they willingly accepted any stigma or hardship that came from identifying as Christians. They matched what Jesus was looking for in the ideal church. Let's follow their example as we seek to honour him in our lives and in our church.